0: So we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning again, Westside. We are glad that you're here today. And just before we dive in, man, there are a few things that really, really um, excite me when I see them get brought to life. And this prayer ministry is one of those things. One of our board members, uh, Mr. Alan Baum, has had a burden um, for this because you can trace back any move of God and any great thing that ever happens starts with the prayers of God's people and so I'm just so proud of Alan stepping out and launching this and doing this. This is every Sunday at 8:30 from 9:30. It's a time of intentional prayer. Um, when you leave, he's got it structured out on a sheet of paper. And one cool thing that he showed me was for the next seven days until you come back for that next time of prayer, you'll be praying each day for a family by name in our congregation. Seven days, seven names. And And so this is just an incredible time for you to be intentional in prayer. And I'm just so excited about that. We are in our series entitled May We Honor. And we're learning about what the Bible says about that. And I had a conversation with somebody this week. And they said, I love um, our sermon series because in my personal Bible reading time, anything that we're studying in church tends to just pop up in my personal Bible reading time. And so they were like, man. Did you know that honor is in the Bible a lot? I was like, man, we should do a sermon series about that. It's crazy, right? But once you take a concept like this and lay it over Scripture, you see how much it is there. And so what I want to do today is just a little bit um, of review as to what we have talked about so far in this series. And so just a little bit of review, how we've defined honor is this, honor... Actually, you know what? Let's read this out loud together. Now you're in the sermon. You're participating. Ready? Lift your voice out loud. Here we go. Honor is the act of holding people and positions in high value. That's what we said the word honor is. In relationships, we said this is the missing ingredient in relationships, is honor. It's through our words, through our actions, is holding people and positions in a high value that never once... Has anybody ever sat down, whether it be in marriage counseling or talking about their life, and say, you know what, I am just too highly valued in my relationships. I just feel like they love me and support me way too much. That's what we've said is the missing ingredient. We also have learned this. We learned um, the opposite of that last week. We said that dishonor is the act of devaluing people and positions. And so when we dishonor someone or even primarily the Lord, what we're doing through our words and our actions is we're saying that this relationship does not matter that much to me. And we sort of walk through just sort of verse by verse, Jesus at his hometown and how he received dishonor. And we sort of walk through that passage and said, gosh, am I doing this in my relationships? Am I assuming the worst? Am I ready for conflict? What does that look like? And then we said this, that dishonor brings death to all relationships. That if you want to torpedo your relationship with Christ or with one another, the best way to do that is to devalue that person. And so primarily what we've been learning about is, number one, who we honor. There was a list of that. We talked about that on Mother's Day, about honoring our parents. So far, that seems to have been the favorite sermon thus far by all parents and everything like that. But in 1 Peter, there's just this little glimpse, and it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, that we see all through the pages of Scripture that primarily the first and most important relationship that we are to honor and lift high is our relationship with God. And I messed around and said that I would love for the tagline of West Side to be this. West Side Church, where we love people Second, right? Because we said that primarily, yes, it is about loving other people, but we can't love ourselves or other people until we first learn to honor and to love God. That's who we honor. Today, we are learning how specifically that we can honor God. We've learned who we honor, but now we're learning primarily how we honor God. And in Proverbs chapter 3, it says it very bluntly and very clearly how God desires to be honored. And he says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You're like, vats? Do I even have vats? What is that, right? Primarily what God says all through the Scriptures is that one of the primary ways that we can honor the Lord, are you ready for this? I mean, we're 10 minutes into the sermon and I'm about to drop it. I'm not burying the lead. I'm showing you my hand right up front, okay? That the Lord says the primary way that you can honor me is with your money. Now, I need to do a little bit of work here. Um, Money is a very emotional topic, um, especially when gas is almost $5 a gallon, okay? Um, Why in the world would we be discussing this? Well, number one, here at Westside, this is a great spot for an amen. You ready for this? Um, At Westside, we love the Bible. Okay, I'm going to let that slide, but it could have been stronger. I'm just letting you know, okay? That we love God's Word, and the reason we don't worship this book But this book tells us who to worship. So we love the Word of God because it points us to the Son of God. And we have talked, you can go on our website, we did a whole series entitled God's Money, How Do I Earn It, How Do I Give It, Whose Is It, all of those questions, you can check that out. But it was overwhelming to survey the Scriptures and to see how much God actually talks about money. That I said this that that if Jesus's preaching schedule, that if most pastors preached like Jesus, then one sermon a month would be on hell because he talked about that more than heaven, and one sermon a month would actually be about money. Why? Why is that? Well, if we stay with our topic of honor, we said there's this dangerous thing that can sort of creep into the church. And it's fake honor, right? So have you ever been a victim of like wish.com or any of these websites where you order something and then it comes in the mail and it's like this big, right? You're like, I've just been had by the internet, right? And there was this fake description and you were like, oh, this is not what I ordered. Um... The Scriptures actually say that there is a fake honor that is sort of religious that, that creeps into the church. It's mentioned in Isaiah, and then Jesus actually says this um, in Matthew. This people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, that was God's greatest indictment to the people of Israel. Have you ever noticed that when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and maybe you didn't grow up in church, maybe you're new to this, welcome, we are so glad you're here. Um, If you're wondering, like, where do I start in the Bible? What's this all about? Here's my suggestion. Don't start in Leviticus. Okay, that'll weird you out, right? Okay, I would start in one of the Gospels because those are sort of like biographies of Jesus. They're like the life and times of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And when you read the Gospels, Jesus speaks harshly sometimes. Actually, in Matthew chapter 15, there's, there's some pretty harsh words that Jesus says, but please listen to this. It is never to the broken, rebellious sinners. It's never to those people. If anything, you see the compassion and the kindness of God towards those types of people. The harshest words that Jesus has in the New Testament are to religious people, church going folk, because he says on the outside, you appear like you have it all together. You pray on the street corners, and when you give, you make it a big deal, sort of like your husband when he does the dishes, right? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i there, man. I want to parade, okay? Like, seven times. Did you notice the lawns mowed today? Did you know, right? That's how the religious people were when they gave and when they prayed and when they did all of that. And there was something about that that broke God's heart. And he said, you honor me with your lips, you say all of this, but when it comes to something particular, your heart, it's far from me. So it begs this question, if that is that serious, then how do we know that we are actually honoring God? Like, it's a dangerous concept that, that we can learn the lingo, that we can kind of move in the circles. We can, on the outward appearance, look like we love and honor God, but our heart is not in it. Which, by the way, that's God's desire. God's desire is not your behavior, It's not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. This is the gospel, that the gospel changes us from the inside out, not the outside in. So I wish that there was this tangible way that we could actually know where our heart was. Man, I wish God's word said that to us. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Because Jesus actually tells us how we can practically, boots on the ground, I'm talking charts, graphs, numbers, know where our heart is and what our heart loves. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, these words, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also bingo, jackpot, Yahtzee, door number one, your treasure. Jesus spoke about money because Jesus understood that the way that people use money, well, maybe here's an illustration. I heard another pastor say this, and I thought that it was so helpful. He was talking about an experience that he had had with a form of brain cancer. And he said that for two to three years of his life was spent in an MRI machine, okay? Um, raise your hand if you've ever had an MRI before, right? And so they, they put you in the most anxious environment ever, and they're like, hey, don't be anxious and just lay still, right? And oh, by the way, if you move, it will ruin everything and we'll have to do this all again, but no pressure. Just like go lay down on this and it's this crazy noise and all of that stuff. Do you know what MRI stands for? Like I'm hooked on phonics and so I needed to know what this stands for. Magnetic resonance imaging, right? Think about this. This is crazy with technology. Sometimes they even use a dye in the MRI and what happens is they'll shoot this dye in you And then you lay on this table and you go in this machine and they can see inside your body. Like... (laughs) I know you're like, hey, Jason, have you ever heard of an MRI machine before? I was just fascinated with human technology the more and more I dove into this. Like, if you're having a gallbladder attack, they can not just look at your gallbladder, but see like, oh, there's sludge, or like you have this many stones, and they can look inside organs and do all of this stuff. If you were to go back 50 years ago, 60 years ago, and to tell someone, hey, there's going to be this average technology where you can like see inside organs and stuff like that, people wouldn't have believed you. They would have been like, that's science fiction. You can actually see the unseen with an MRI machine. And Jesus says, money is an MRI scan. Jesus says if you want to actually see into the depths of your heart, if you want to see the root and not just the fruit, if you want to get past behavior and get down into belief and actually tangibly measure what or who you love, you follow your money. Because where your money goes is what you love. And so Jesus says the greatest test to understand this is money. But here's what's significant. And this is how we started our God's Money series. This was the guiding principle for us. You will never hear me speak about money in purely financial terms. Because money is not first and foremost about finances. Money is a theological concept. And here's what I mean. The word theology means the study of God. And so here was our guiding sentence. That what we believe about the good news of Jesus Christ... What we believe about the Gospel, like every year we do Easter really big and and we're either like we were at the Coliseum and then we're at the Rogers and we shoot confetti cannons, and your kids get like all of these sweets to get them jacked up and then to send them home. Like we do Easter big because we believe this that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross, bloody and died, and was buried in a tomb. And three days later, the stone was rolled away and Jesus is alive. Like we believe that, that someone actually beat death. And because they beat death, that now we don't have to fear death, that we can know in our hearts of hearts and in the depths of our minds that what happens to us after we die is that we will be in the presence of God. It's incredible news. That God's kingdom is making its way here on earth right now. That God is pushing back darkness. But what we believe about that is not determined by how much theology you know, by how many books you read, by how many Bible verses you memorized in Awanas, any of that stuff. What we believe about the good news of Jesus is revealed in how we behave with money. It is a deeply theological and biblical issue. So what's the big idea today? If honor is this idea of placing value on something and saying, I am going to honor this person or this position and hold them up because they are valuable to me, then the primary way to do that is to give what is most valuable to you. And so here's the sentence. When you honor God with the most valuable thing you have, you reveal that God is most valuable. That's the concept. That money, if the world says money makes the world go round, and it's so funny that on our money, we have the phrase, in God we trust. And as one um, Christian theologian rapper says, funny... Our money says in God we trust because money is the God we trust. But if that's the most valuable thing, if that's what consumes your thoughts, your actions, a majority of your life of working and doing, when you take that thing that is most valuable and you lay it down at the feet of Jesus, Jesus is saying, by the way that you behave with that, You are showing that you love God more than you love money. By the way, that's the secret of the Christian life. Did you know that God has given you time, a family, your possessions, your home, even your breath? Like, do this really quick. Everybody, just take in a deep breath and just let it out. That's a gift. That is a gift. You woke up today. You have life. You have vitality. But did you know that God has given you those things so that you would live in such a way that when people see how you use your home, how you use your time, and how you use your money, that when they see the way you use that, that they know, oh, they don't love money. Oh, they don't just worship their home. Oh, they don't just love their career. They love God. They love Jesus by the way that they use that. And so today, here's what I want to do. I was praying and asking God, how can I just tangibly break this down? Not just abstract Bible verses, but show us someone who loves money and then interacts with Jesus and then no longer loves money, but then loves Jesus. And the way that they use their money, they show that they love Jesus. And we see that in the life of Zacchaeus, right? So um, or just raise your hand if you grew up in junior church singing the Zacchaeus song, right? Even when Chelsea was reading the verses, I was like, go into your house today, right? right? It was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. But what's interesting is is when you back up and look at the context of Luke's gospel, Luke is writing to non-believers. He's writing to people who weren't Jewish, people who were living in Rome, and who were curious about Jesus. Luke mentions more about money in his one gospel than all three other gospels combined. And I want to show you something. He interacts, Jesus interacts in Luke's gospel with multiple people on the issue of money. But here's what's interesting. We never get a name. Like um, the first account is seen in Luke 12. We see the rich fool. That's that's how he's named. And and he's got all this money and he keeps getting money. And he's like, what should I do with this money? And he's like, I'm going to build a big barn and store it. And God's like, eh, wrong answer. Um, you're dying. And so God takes him and, and uh, Jesus shows in the story that the purpose of your life is not your possessions. But we never get his name. And then if you travel even further in Luke 16, we see the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that? We spent a lot of time on that memento mori and and it's getting more and more intense and we see this man was really really rich Lazarus was really poor but then when they die and go into eternity this man is extremely poor and Lazarus is extremely rich and Jesus turns the socioeconomic class system on its head but again no name and it is increasing in severity and then the next thing that we see is Luke 18 the rich young ruler. Do you remember that interaction? This guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, great question. Great question. And it says that Jesus looked at the young man and loved him. Like, man, that's interesting. I just thought, man, what was that interaction like? Jesus looks at this man, loves him. And it says that the man was very, very wealthy. And then Jesus says, how do you interpret the commandments? The guy says, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, bingo, keep the commandments. And then the guy has the audacity to say this, but I've already done that. I've done all of those things. I was number one in Awanas. I got the sash with the hat and the pin and all this. I've done everything. And then Jesus says this, well, then sell your possessions. Give away your money. And the guy goes, Yeah, about money, see. And what does he reveal? He reveals that he hadn't kept those commandments and that the man turns away sad. And then we don't get his name. I mean, we get a lot of detail. Jesus loved him, huge interaction, no name. And then it's reaching to a high climax. And then Jesus drops this verse in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 18, he says these words, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he even uses a bit of sarcasm. He's like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Did you know, like, I study throughout the week, and I'm reading, and I'm reading, there are guys who actually in commentaries are like, well, you see a camel represented and then the eye of an... E-. Jesus was making a funny point, okay? It was extremism. And He was saying those with wealth are the most difficult to reach for the kingdom of God. And, and some of you are arguing a little bit with me right here. And, and what you're saying is, well, woof, Man, well, I'm good. Because I'm not, like, wealthy or anything like that. Like, like I grew up Poe. I didn't have the O and the R. I just had the P. Like, that was our life. So I'm, I am good, man. I'm good. Until you realize and look at the world's socioeconomic status and that a majority of human beings live off of $2 a day in the whole world. That the wealth that America has and the average American citizen is so far beyond anything we have ever seen in history. And it's funny that we also see revivals in the poorest countries where there's the most persecution and missionaries that spend their lives in danger hiding Bibles, having to hike 15 miles just to baptize someone, come back to the United States and say, it is harder to reach my family and friends here in the U.S. than it is to reach people in these hostile countries. Here's what I'm telling you. Jesus ain't wrong. This is us. This is a reality. And so Luke is turning up the heat, and he's turning up the heat. Nobody gets a name. And then Jesus drops this, and now we land at Luke 19. Do you see it? Isn't the Bible incredible, guys? It's it's unbelievable to see this. And then you see Zacchaeus. A name is mentioned. So here's the question. Why does Zacchaeus get named and nobody else does? Well, remember what we learned? That that in Jesus' day, it was an honor and shame culture. So you were known by your dad's last name or anything like that or your trade or what you did. What God is doing through his word with Zacchaeus is he's honoring Zacchaeus. That Zacchaeus forever... From now until Jesus returns, His name is forever recorded in history as being someone who got it, who understood the gospel. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at this story, and then I want to pull some principles from it. But we have to know the context of this story. So have your eyes on Scripture, and let's walk through it. Luke 19, verse 1, here it is. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho. Pause, okay? Anytime the Bible mentions a place or a name, big deal, right? God is recording these things for us in Scripture. Jericho was a massively wealthy trade route. So a lot of roads converged there in Jericho. And back then, it was just like a toll booth today. Um, Rome supplied tons of roads. That's what made their kingdom so expansive. That literally the technology of roads, that's where the phrase all roads lead to Rome. That's why. And so Jericho had all these roads that converged. Well, in order to ride on this road, you need to pay the tax. And so everyone would pay their taxes, but we learn this, that he arrives in Jericho and was passing through. Verse 2. And behold, anytime you see the word behold in your Bible, just think, get ready. Like we did a whole series in Advent called Behold. So when the Bible says behold, get ready, because something's coming. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Um, interesting, did you know that Zacchaeus' name means a righteous person? Okay, so, so we know that he's Jewish, And his name means a righteous person. But then here's the description. Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Okay? So so think about this. Number one, he's named as the chief tax collector. Did you know that this is the only time in the entire Bible that anyone gets this description? chief tax collector, and was very rich. So if the Bible says that you were very rich, then you are ballin', right? I mean, this guy is extremely wealthy. But you need to know something about a tax collector. And, and we've discussed this before. For Rome to govern the Jewish people, they didn't have the best relationship with them. Imagine that, the people that you're suppressing and using as slaves, not a good relationship there, Right? So, in order to collect taxes from the Jewish people, they would hire out a Jewish person. Now, you've got to understand, this was the biggest sellout that a Jewish person could ever do. That you're literally working for the enemy. So, what guys like Zacchaeus and Matthew, the tax collector, would do is they would knock on your door and they would say, Hey, um, it's the end of April and your taxes are due to the Roman government. All hail, Caesar. And you owe um, 12% of your gross income to Caesar. But here's the reality they didn't really own 12%, right? They actually only owed like 7%. But what the tax collector would do is he would jack up the price and skim off the top and live off the difference. And everyone knew this. And the Roman government knew this too. But with Zacchaeus being a chief tax collector, he had guys that worked for him. So please picture this. Zacchaeus is almost like Michael Corleone. I mean, he's got guys that work for him, goons that go out and get his money and bring it back. And when I tell you that tax collectors were despised by everyone, history records that if you became a tax collector, your family would abandon you because it brought so much shame on the family. It was so bad that we have a man recorded in Scripture who walks into church on a Sunday, and begins to pray to God, and he says these words, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Whoa, okay, first off, that's a red flag, okay? That is like the most self-righteous prayer ever in the history of the world. I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That's how hated they were. That people prayed to God and said, God, I thank you, I am not Zacchaeus. Okay? Like if people are praying that about you, there's not good things going on in your life. Okay? That is a very serious thing. This man is hated. And then notice this in the story. Verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Um, I learned this this week. We've always learned Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. And he climbed up in the sycamore, right? We learned that he was small. That's why he couldn't see Jesus. Well, that's true. The Bible tells us that. But think about it. If you're standing there and you are aware that someone behind you can't see, or if you're in a movie theater or anything like that, like I spend most of my life just like crouched down and slid down in chair. You try to accommodate the person who can't see, right? Unless you're just a horrible person who also doesn't put their shopping cart where shopping carts go, okay, right? But what I'm saying is, is if you know someone is small, you accommodate them and you help them see. Did you know that most commentators agree that the crowd, because they despised Zacchaeus, was keeping him from seeing Jesus? So Jesus has got I me. Mean, he's performing miracles, it's happening. Jesus is passing by and Zacchaeus is trying to get through and people are like, you're a tax collector. Get to the back of the line, man. That he is literally shamed. You can't see Jesus. So he climbs up in the tree, and then here it is, verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. The whole story hinges on that little phrase. Jesus looking up and seeing Zacchaeus. Do you know what I thought this week? Jesus was so intentional with the way that he lived his life. That Jesus would walk into a place and actually see people. And I thought this week, how much more different would my life be if I actually saw people? If I wasn't just, you know, getting gas and having to go here and have, but saw people. Zacchaeus' life changed because Jesus simply looked up. Jesus looks up and then says this, Zacchaeus Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Okay, this is mind-blowing. I just told you how, I mean, despised tax collectors were. So here we go. You're going to be in the Bible right now. We're going to have some fun. I'm going to read that again, and then I want you to gasp. (gasps) I mean, people would have gasped. Jesus, you can't go to his house. Do you know who's going to be at his house? Do you know how he paid for his house? Jesus, he's going to serve you food that he bought with the money that he ripped. You can't do that. Okay, so, so here we go. And he looked up, and he said to him, Zacchaeus... Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. <gasps> Great job. Verse 6 So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Uh oh, here it is. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled and said, He has gone to the guest of a man who is a sinner. So now you have to grumble, okay? Are you guys good at grumbling? All right, I just want you to turn to your neighbor and go, like, okay, that's probably what grumbling sounds like in a big crowd, okay? So I'm going to read it. They were, um, they were gasping, and then verse 7, and when they saw it, they all grumbled, right? That's probably what it sounds like, okay? You can't go to his house. Um, by the way, jot this reference down. Luke 18, verse 43. Um, Just a few verses before the crowd grumbled, by the way, it's the same crowd that was praising Jesus. Okay? little side note here is for free, not my notes. Um, If you live for people's applause and acceptance, you will die at their rejection. If Jesus Christ lived his life by satisfying the masses, it would have never have happened. The same crowd that was, oh, praise you, Jesus. They loved the miracles. They loved what Jesus could provide. They loved it when they could control Jesus. But the moment Jesus goes somewhere or says something that challenges their belief, they're done with him. And then it says this, verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, here it is, this is the whole, the whole thing. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone or anything, I restore it fourfold. And then notice what Jesus says, verse 9. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. And then verse 10, this is the motto for the mission. This, If Jesus drove a car and needed a bumper sticker, this is the bumper sticker. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. There is so much here. Three quick principles about honor and money. Now notice, Zacchaeus was described as someone who loved money. He was rich, very rich. Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, and his life is changed, and then he doesn't love money. He loves Jesus. What is this about? Well, the first thing is simply this. Zacchaeus's desire to honor Jesus is the response to Jesus honoring Zacchaeus. Guys, if you've understood anything at Westside and ever heard me preach, it is always this. God makes the first move. God always makes the first move. God noticed Zacchaeus. Jesus saw Zacchaeus and said, by the way, Jesus, little pushy in the relationship. Jesus didn't ask to come over to Zacchaeus' house. He said, Zacchaeus, I am, I must go to your house today. And then Zacchaeus receives him gladly. In the Middle East and in Jesus' era, to be a guest at someone's house was not only that you were the guest of honor, but it was a big deal for somebody to have you at their house that was also honoring that other person. And And then Jesus says, Behold, salvation has come to this house. Is Jesus saying that... Zacchaeus has now entered God's kingdom because Zacchaeus said, I'm now giving my money away. Is that how it works? That we do something and then get God's attention and then we really impress God and God's like, oh wow, because you did blank, now you're in the kingdom of heaven. Absolutely not. Jesus is saying, it's almost like Jesus is standing in front of an apple tree that has apples on it going, wow. Look at these apples on this tree. Jesus is observing the fruit of salvation. That Zacchaeus has had a change of heart and it's seen in his generosity, which leads us to the second point. Generosity is the gauge of your gratitude to God's grace. That's it. That giving is the gauge of gratitude that if you say to God that I am so thankful that you died on the cross for me Jesus that you rose 3 days later that that breath that I took in God I am so thankful for your grace Jesus leans in and says follow your treasure and show me how generous you are it is impossible according to scripture to experience the grace of God and then not express it. But I believe the primary problem with the Church of Jesus Christ in the American West is that we are obsessed with experiencing the grace of God and not expressing it. And not expressing it. That literally the gauge of your gratitude is seen in the giving in your generosity. And then the last point is this, that Jesus' ministry was funded by this grateful generosity. Did you know this? A lot of times people don't think about these things. Um, Judas was actually in charge of the money in Jesus' ministry. I mean, think, how did Jesus travel? How did Jesus eat? How did all of these things happen? Well, actually, we get a glimpse into Jesus' ministry, and it's found in Luke's Gospel again. Luke says these words. Soon afterward, he went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve disciples were with him, and also some women. This is really cool, ladies. Who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Did you know that Herod was like the enemy of Jesus? He was like a governor for Rome. I love it. Herod's trying to kill Jesus, and his wife loves Jesus, and is like giving him some money on the side. Like, I love it. I think that's great. Herod's household manager, and Susanna, here it is, and many others, who provided for him, Jesus, out of their means. Any time that someone gives to Jesus' ministry, it is always noted in the Scriptures. Um, The widow who gave out of her sacrifice, not out of her abundance. Now, what does all of this mean, and how does all of this come together with our honor series? Well, we've said that if you honor God by giving Him the most valuable thing that you have, you reveal that God is most valuable to you. And I think it is without argument or discussion that there is something powerful about money. Like it really does. It really does give you a sense of control and contentment. That's why the Bible says, be aware of the power of that. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not evil. It is the love of it because the lie in which it brings. Now, fast forward. What is the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ now today? It is, according to the book of Acts, to continue the work of Jesus' ministry, correct? Correct. That that the point of Westside is to point to Jesus. That in our words and in our works and whatever we do, it is to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. And and maybe you're new here and and maybe you're a committed follower and you just need a little bit of refreshing. There is a lot that goes on at Westside. There's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes. There are volunteers, community group leaders who open up their home one night a week and have people in, provide food, provide soul care. There are people back there watching your kids and teaching your kids about Jesus who are giving up their seat in here so they can disciple your kids back there. And then there are tons of things that we invest in. Like like we believe in strong marriages here at Westside. We believe that a strong marriage can change the world. But we just don't say that. Like, just this year alone, we have sent three couples to marriage-intensive counseling for like five or six days in order to rejuvenate their marriage. The day-to-day work that takes place for benevolence, for buying groceries for individuals, for paying for electric bills, I mean, for gas, for all of these things. West Side, you are, you are a generous church for those of you who have bought in to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But here's what we're beginning to see as our board, and as we survey and look at the ministry of what's taking place, the ministry is increasing. That with youth and with all of these ministries that are taking place, that people are needing the good news of Jesus Christ now more than ever. And that is increasing. And then through surveying and crunching numbers and looking at it, when you take away the kids' attendance and everything in the back, on an average... On a Sunday morning, of the attendance of people that come, Westside operates on only 28% of the average attendance of giving. Now, granted, some of you are new, some of you are not core members, all of those things, you're peeking over the fence. I'm telling you right now just what the Bible says about money. But for some of us, I'm afraid that we are starting to get into the category of desiring, of experiencing, of taking, but rather not the grace of expressing. And so when I see this, I don't go logistical with numbers. As your pastor, when I see this statistic, I say this, we have a gospel issue. We have a gospel issue. We have an issue of not understanding of what the cross and an empty grave actually means to our life. And so now we have to get down to the why in closing. Why do we give God our best? Is it just because God is some dictator? I mean, when you look at the verse in Proverbs and what it says, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce, literally the best. So back then you would do your harvest and what they would do is the very first thing off top they would give unto the temple and unto the Lord. What this verse is saying is that when you honor God with the most valuable thing you have, it's a priority. And here's where I think a lot of Christians live. They try to balance it. They set their finances. They do all of these things. And then when you pull into the parking lot on Sunday, you go, oh, yeah, we should probably give something. And here's what I'm saying to you. The Bible says that that's exhausting. That that the joy of giving. And then there's the promise. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. How audacious that God would do that. But do you know what's true? That God always blesses obedience. This is not prosperity gospel. It's not if you give this money, then you can be guaranteed that you're going to be... It's not that. What God is saying is that I always bless obedience. So here's the challenge. Anytime God talks about money, He's saying this. You say that you trust me with your salvation. But can you trust me with your checkbook? I mean think about it guys we say that we trust god with our eternal destiny with our eternal life and where we're going to spend all of eternity but then we grip the checkbook as tightly as we can but what's the motivation is it just because god deserves it there's always a gospel motivation why do we give god our best well simply this because God gave us His best in His Son. And then, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he has been hanging on a cross for four hours, pulling himself up with a bloody back on a splintered wood cross, baking in the sun. He's been whipped. He has been, I mean, the worst torture that a human being could go through. We get the word excruciating from the cross. That's what the word means from the cross. And in this moment, Jesus says, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and here it is and gave up his spirit. Oh, this is the God who made the Milky Way, who spoke the Rocky Mountains into existence. In the book of Isaiah, it said that when he created the universe, he stretched it with his hand like an iPhone. It's this God, and this God gives up his life, not for people who deserve it, but for broken sinners like you and I, you see, Zacchaeus knew who he was. Jesus knew who he was. And that was the beauty of the Gospel. I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. That Jesus didn't tithe his blood. Whew. Jesus Christ did not say, that's good enough. That'll do. Jesus Christ said, it is finished. Tekelesesia, which means paid in full paid in full and if we say that we have experienced that grace jesus says then express that grace in your generosity and so that's why we have laid this opportunity down for you i strategically did not want to do the offering on the day that i spoke about money do you know why because i do not want to manipulate you it has to be a gospel motivation I can stir your emotions and your affections for three or four days. But I want you as a family, you as a husband, to pray and to ask God, what are we to give to this? This goes to our just year-end giving, it goes to our general fund to match, so we meet budget, all of those things, the ministries that are taking place. There is a lot of ministry that is happening. But for you as a family, if giving is the gauge of gratitude, what does it look like for you? to entrust God with your finances if you're going to be gone there's a box out there you can do an honor offering on the memo you can give online you can do all of that stuff listen i'm not i'm not laying down amounts i'm not worried about the particulars what i'm worried about is do we understand the good news that jesus christ died for sinners that he rose for sinners and that he rules and reigns for all eternity and that we've submitted our life to him and that the kingdom of god is pushing back darkness That the devil does not have the last word. That death does not have the last word. That God is healing people of cancer. That he's healing broken marriages. That he's healing addictions. That people are crossing from death to life. Do we understand that? And when you see that, your money is nothing in comparison. Don't get it twisted. God doesn't need your money. The one thing that you miss out on is the blessing of obedience. And to be able to know that I contributed to that, that I partnered with God in that. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today so grateful for your word. God, we are grateful even when it's hard. Jesus, you leave us no wiggle room. You literally say, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is that we can tangibly measure and look at what do we love? Well, where does my money go? So God, I pray for a number of people today. I pray for those who are so faithful, that 28%, God. God, those same people are serving in so many areas. They're giving. What an honor it is to walk alongside them in the kingdom of God. There is no better church. God, renew those people, refresh those people, bless those people. Let them know to not give up even when it gets weary. And then God I, put, I I pray for the individual who has not yet trusted you with their finances. And God, I'm praying that you would reveal yourself to them in such a way that it is mind-blowing. I mean, I'm talking a step in calculated faith of this is who I am, this is what I have, and God, this is what I'm trusting you with. And watch you just like the little boy with the fish and the loaves. All you need is a little bit to make more than enough. And God, I pray that our faith would be strengthened when we do that. And then God, I pray for you to comfort those who need comforting, but also to convict those who need convicting, who said, somehow along the way, I drifted into the crowd of receiving the miracles, receiving the food, receiving the benefit, but not expressing and giving anything back to God. Holy Spirit, move in this place. Do what you will in our lives. And at the end of the day, what we simply say is that Jesus you are most precious and you are most valuable to us. And so we lay down what we say is valuable to show that you are more valuable. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.